We are in a series uh, through the New Testament book of the Act called the Acts of the Apostles. Our title is Turning the World Upside Down. Uh, the title of this message is Mission Berea. We're in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. And is uh, as is our custom here, will you please stand with me if you're able to honor God's word as we read it aloud together. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is God's word. You may be seated. I wonder this morning if you've ever been part of a a missionary movement or a a work of the Spirit of God that was so powerful, uh, so influential, so consequential, that both the religious and the irreligious decided to run you out of town or otherwise violently oppose you. Anybody here having had that experience? Not yet. Okay. Would you be willing to take that risk? For Paul and Silas, that very thing had occurred first in Philippi and then again in Thessalonica. And uh, where we find them today is on the road again. Let's take a moment and remind ourselves what had occurred in Thessalonica, the provincial capital of Macedonia, as we read it last week. Paul and Silas had come from Philippi and ministered the word in one of the synagogues there. And some Jews and Greeks were persuaded and believed the gospel. But at verse 5, Luke wrote, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, that is Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. One of the things I'm reminded of frequently is that we read these stories and they're true. They actually happened. They actually, the places that in which they happened still exist today. If you've ever read the Book of Mormon or Mormon literature, you find a fantasy list of cities and civilizations that 
for which no shred of archaeological evidence has ever, ever, ever been found. So we're reading about real people in real places that can be found on the map today. I don't think that Paul and Silas were surprised by what happened there in Thessalonica. Paul and Barnabas had been threatened in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, Paul was stoned. Like I say, that's, I like to say that's the kind of stoning with rocks. Um, stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He and Silas had been beaten mercilessly and imprisoned in Philippi. Paul was experiencing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus regarding him that Paul would suffer for his name. And besides, Jesus said there'd be days like this. There'd be days like this, Jesus said. He anticipated that his apostles would be rejected. In Mark 6, verse 11, it's recorded that he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 9 of chapter 17 indicates that Jason posted a bond in order to gain their freedom. And as it's kind of interesting, Luke's writing, he just kind of casually expects that we know who Jason is. Um, read between the lines, he was hosting uh, Paul and Silas, apparently in his hometown. Uh, it seems likely that part of the agreement as he posted bond was that they would ensure that Paul and Silas would leave town. Um, notice verse 10, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away immediately and by night under the cover of darkness, probably so that no one would detect their departure and pursue them. It's interesting that their destination of choice was Berea. Again, here's a city that still exists today. Its modern name is Veroia with a V. Um, might have been part of the strategy as well because it was off the beaten path, uh, an unlikely choice, I suppose, in some people's minds. 50 miles southwest from Thessalonica, a two-day walk. Um, and though the, the city of Berea in the first century was of little importance historically or politically, um, in the first century it actually boasted a fairly large population. It was a good-sized city. I went online and just looked at some pictures of of the modern city and its surroundings and tried just to try to get a feel for the place where Paul and Silas had gone. And uh, it's beautiful. Uh, just a, a green, verdant landscape, rolling hills. Um, cities flanked by two rivers. Not only has a commanding view of the Macedonian plain to the north, there's a sweeping view. Um, to the north of them, but also of the Olympian mountain range, and yes, there is another one in the world, that, that rises behind that city to the south. It's just a gorgeous location. It's not hard to understand why the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero recorded that he would frequently uh, retreat from the capital city of Thessalonica, the stress of that capital, to the quiet of Berea because of its beauty and its tranquility. A true to form, when Paul and Silas arrived in Berea, they went as soon as they possibly could to the synagogue. Uh, it's interesting that Luke doesn't describe really at all their ministry in Berea, except that it was 
in the synagogue, he, he only describes the Bereans' response. But as you read these two descriptions of the ministry in Thessalonica and then the ministry in Berea, what you begin to realize is that there are some striking parallels between what took place uh, in each location. So I think it's safe to, on that basis to assume that, that their ministry in Berea probably mirrored their ministry in Thessalonica quite closely. So let's take a, a momentary look back at the ministry of the word as Luke described it in Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, aren't you glad I pronounced that for you? Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now there are five verbs here in verses 1 to 4 that I think provide a helpful outline for understanding the shape of the ministry in Berea by way of extension from the ministry in Thessalonica. In verse 2, it says that for three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There's our first of five verbs. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That Greek word translated reasoned is the root word of our English word dialogue. And it tells us that Paul wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, standing on a platform six feet above contradiction and, and uh, you know, holding forth. But that he began with the Scriptures and he engaged them in an active discussion, an active give and take, drawing out their thoughts, leading them to deeper understanding. And as he did that, he explained, there's verb number two, and proved... Verb number three, to them, that the scriptures themselves indicate that in fact it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. It was a radical idea for the Jews. They couldn't conceive of a, a Messiah who would have to suffer and die, let alone rise from the dead. You know, the, the, their image of the Messiah was Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Pick your character, Conan the Barbarian or the Terminator or whatever. They pictured this guy that was just a stud, a military leader, a warrior. And Paul took it upon himself to open their eyes to the possibility that, in fact, the Christ would have to suffer and die and rise from the dead to do that directly from the Scriptures. And that's that's what's behind the Greek word there translated explaining. A little different than our English understanding. It means actually to open someone's eyes to see what they have not seen or understood before. And in proving, he, he then laid out the evidence that validated his claim that would enable them to connect the dots. And the fourth verb then is proclaim. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you 
is the Christ. Notice what Paul's done. He's taken them to the scriptures that they've always known, uh, thought they understood, helped them to see in the scriptures what they had not previously seen. He took the prophecies regarding Messiah, overlaid them with the life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of, of Jesus of Nazareth, and demonstrated to them that, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Finally, some of them were persuaded. Verb number five. They were persuaded. Not all, but some. And Luke says that those who were persuaded included a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Here's a little homework assignment for those of you who, who wish to accept it. And that is to answer the question, why is it that in Luke's descriptions of the results of the ministry in Thessalonica and Berea, he happens to mention in both instances that among those who believed in Christ were prominent Greek women. Because in those days, even prominent Greek women were regarded as somewhat worthless. So I couldn't find any explanation. Maybe you can. So uh, you can bring a book report next week if you find it. I'd, I'd be interested to, to know if you find some insights on that. And notice then that they demonstrated their persuasion by taking their first step of faith. Luke says, I think somewhat cryptically, they joined Paul and Silas. They were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. Maybe that's a way of saying that they believed someone once said that the receiving of the word consists of two parts, attention of mind and intention of the will. Attention of mind and intention of the will. And we see both of these in the response of some of the Thessalonians. Albert Moeller, commenting on this passage, wrote, The Christian faith is not a blind faith. The Bible makes claims that require deep contemplation. Indeed, the Bible lays claim to an absolute authority and asserts one way to eternal life. Faith, therefore, must not be seen as jumping off the cliff. Instead, we come to understand God's grace, the truth claims of the Scriptures, and place our faith in the well-reasoned, well-articulated power of the gospel. There are many who believe that if they were to ever become a Christian, they'd have to just kind of flip the lid and check their brain at the door. Not so. Not so. Well, on now to Berea then. And the noble Bereans finally getting to our main passage of the day. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Luke tells us here that these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that they were more aristocratic um, he just meant that they accepted no bull. <laughs> just kidding. And th- thank you. You, you. you did better than the first service. In this case, 
their nobility is shown by their fair-mindedness. That's, that's the kind of the gist of the word. Fair-mindedness, open-mindedness, eagerness, personal interest in receiving and examining what Paul had to say. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things, what Paul was teaching, were so. Their, their receptivity was combined with a, a critical questioning. The verb for examine there is anacrino. It's a word that comes from the legal world. It implies integrity, objectivity, absence of bias, and, and it describes investigation, scrutiny, uh, sifting through the evidence and arriving at a carefully considered conclusion. In other words, they, they didn't just take the apostles' word for it. They just, they didn't just nod and smile like some of you do. But day after day, day after day, they compared for themselves what Paul was saying to the Word of God. Their listening and their examining didn't result in unanimous acceptance of the gospel. There wasn't a mass conversion like a Billy Graham crusade. Just as in Thessalonica, some believed, including, again, prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And just as in Thessalonica, division arose among them, and it was deja vu all over again. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him, brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And I can just see, you know, Paul and Silas when they realize that these guys from Thessalonica have now come down to Berea to, to cause them trouble, just kind of hanging their heads and saying, Oh man, you know, I, I kind of view these guys as little Pac-Mans, you know, beep, 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 chomping away, chomp, 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 and coming around the corner when you least expect them. The Bereans, uh, in response to that, were a little more proactive than, than the Thessalonians had been. Instead of waiting for the potential tragedy that might come of actual contact between, um, the agitators and, and Paul and Silas, they acted immediately to send Paul off uh, on his way to the sea, providing him with a personal escort on a 300-mile journey down to Athens. Here's another little homework assignment for those of you who are willing to accept it. In the language, in the Greek language, there's there's a bit of a hint that it's possible that the movement of, of Paul to the sea was actually a feint. It was actually a fake. It was actually a diversion. And, and that, um, they pretended they were taking him by route out to the sea, but then turned and went overland down to Athens. And, uh, if you want to study that, take a look at it. There are some people that believe that that's what it actually says. Interesting that, that Paul was compelled to leave all three of the cities he visited in Macedonia. First Philippi, 
um, then Thessalonica, and now Berea. Must have been somewhat frustrating, but the happy news is that he left behind in each of those places what became stable churches. Now, if if one was inclined to be simplistic, which is sometimes a temptation, this is the point in the sermon where I might say, hey, let's let's all just be more like the Bereans. Get out there and try to be like them. If you Google the word Berean, uh, you will find that there are thousands of churches and schools and ministries and ministry networks universities, even denominations all across America that bear the name Berean. For uh, six short verses in a chapter in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, they, they, they gained some prominence. They became an inspiration. For, for over 40 years, my parents were part of an adult Sunday school class that called themselves the Bereans. And there, there's nothing wrong, of course, with aspiring to be like the Bereans. In fact, there's everything right with eagerly receiving the Word of God and carefully daily examination, uh, carefully daily examining the Scriptures. The psalmist said in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If there's a statement in all of Scripture that defines the essence of what it means to be a godly man or woman, there there it is. In Psalm 19, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The Apostle Peter wrote, Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation. Paul wrote to his protege Timothy, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here at LifePoint, we we regard ourselves as an evangelical church. Um, the significance and the meaning of being an evangelical uh, is at risk of being lost because the term has been attached to uh, conservative political movements. Uh, the world regards evangelicals as a as a political voting block rather than a faith community. But historically, the, the characteristics of an evangelical church included a, a high view of Scripture that, that all Scripture, is, as Paul wrote to Timothy, is inspired by God. Yeah, and because it's inspired by God, it's authoritative uh, 
uh, for our lives, for our faith, for our conduct, for the church. Uh, evangelicals also believe in the, the necessity of conversion, of personal belief in Jesus Christ for salvation. We believe in the, the, the mandate to, to serve the needy in our communities. Uh, evangelicals have always believed uh, and, and, and owned the responsibility to take the gospel to the world. And the, so those are some of the characteristics. And as I said, historically, one of the essential defining characteristics of an evangelical Christian is that high regard for and obedience to the Bible as the ultimate authority. Evangelicals claim that to believe that all 66 books of the Bible in both Old and New Testaments are not mere products of human invention, but are inspired by God, specifically breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that the writers wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, that, that last description is from Peter's writings, and he, he said that you know, no prophecy of Scripture is a product of the human will, the will of man, but that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the words that he uses there are actually from, uh, they're actually nautical in their origin. And it's a picture of them raising their sails and, and having the wind of the Spirit fill their sails and, and move them along. And for that reason, we, we also claim that the Bible is supremely authoritative for our faith and for our conduct. And yet in the, the church in America right now, is in the midst of a crisis with regard to our relationship with the Bible. Um, in truth, uh, this crisis has been ongoing for several decades. Uh, we're experiencing um, the very unhappy results of that in our time. It seems that for many Christians in the United States, reading the Bible is a mere afterthought. Uh, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey recently on the role of faith in everyday life. As part of their research, they asked self-identified American Christians this question, what parts of being a Christian are essential? What, what parts of being a Christian, a follower of Christ, are essential? And I'm sad to say that Bible reading and Bible study were way, way down the list of what Christians in America regard as essential. Only 42%, less than 50% of those surveyed, said that reading the Bible is essential to the Christian life. A new poll that was released by Gallup shows that less than half of self-described evangelicals or born-again Christians even believe that that the Bible is literally God's Word. And according to the random telephone survey of 1,007 American adults taken in May of this year, only 40% of those identifying as evangelicals hold the entire Bible as the actual Word of God. Among all U.S. adults surveyed, just 20%, one-fifth, say the Bible is the literal Word of God which uh, the Gallup organization reported as an all-time low. 51% consider only parts of the Bible as the inspired Word of God. I don't know how you arrive there, unless you think that you're so smart 
that, that you have such a superior intellect that you can decide which parts of the Bible are God's word and which are not. Eight percent of those who actually claim to be evangelicals agreed with this statement. Listen, that the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Among all Christians, or among all Americans, rather, a record high 29% now agree with that statement. Last year, only 10% of American Christian adults indicated that they read the Bible four times or more per week. 9% said they read the Bible once a week. Another 9% said once a month. 8% said three or more times per year. So while while evangelical Christians claim that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God, studies reveal that we, in fact, read the Bible far less than Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, groups that we would regard as cults. I could go on and drown you in statistics, and but I won't. The fact is, we are in trouble where this crisis of confidence in the Bible as God's word is leading is to a total erosion, even in the church, of a biblical worldview. Well, what is that? What is a biblical worldview? First of all, we should answer the the more fundamental question, what is a worldview anyway? And a simple answer to that question is that a, a worldview is essentially how one views, how one interprets, how one interacts with the world around them. At the center of a worldview is a set of basic beliefs and assumptions about what is real, about what is true, uh, about what is good, uh, and how we should then live in light of those beliefs. One's worldview becomes the filter, in fact, by which everything in the world is interpreted evaluated, and understood. When we add the adjectives biblical or Christian to worldview, we're describing a way of viewing the world that has as at its core or its starting point a set of beliefs and assumptions and values that are rooted in sound biblical doctrine. And as such, it is distinguished from other worldviews such as atheism or agnosticism or existentialism, humanism, Marxism, materialism, moral therapeutic deism, and, and so forth. Worldviews that, that we're constantly surrounded and, in fact, influenced by. I don't want this to be confusing this morning, so, so I want to share with you just a, a very clear example. This is from the Barna Research Group, a Christian research group. It was used as the basis for a major national research survey that was conducted in early 2022. And for the purposes of their research, they defined the core of a biblical worldview as believing that moral truths, absolute moral truths exist, and that that those moral truths are defined by the Bible and firm belief in six specific doctrinal viewpoints. 
just six. Those views were that Jesus Christ, first of all, lived a sinless life. Secondly, that God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe who rules over all. That salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. That Satan is real. That a Christian has a responsibility to share his or her, his or her faith in Christ with others. And sixth, that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. Now, I, I'd be inclined to add some things to that list, and I imagine that some of you might as well. But we're just using this as an example, so, um, and I agree at least with those six statements. So, so let's leave it right there for now. And then we might ask, for whom is a biblical worldview especially important? Especially important. And I wonder if you'll agree with me that the possession of a firm biblical worldview is especially important for people like me, for pastors and elders, for Christian parents, for other Christian leaders like Sunday school teachers and youth ministry workers, for for mental health counselors who identify as Christian. That is, for those who are especially influential in the lives of others in the name of Jesus. The results of Barna's survey should be very, very concerning to all of us. They found, on the basis of those six doctrinal viewpoints, that only, listen now, only 41%, 41%, 4 in 10, of all senior or lead pastors in America have a biblical worldview. That is, only... could check even those six boxes. Only 28% of assistant or associate pastors possess a biblical worldview. Only 13%, now listen, of teaching pastors. And and what's meant by that term teaching pastor is is a person whose only job in a church is to stand right up here and teach the Bible every week, to, to, to teach God's people. Only 13% of the teaching pastors in America have a biblical worldview, those whose sole responsibility is teaching. Only 13% of children's and youth pastors possess a biblical worldview. Only 6% of Americans who claim to be Christians possess a biblical worldview. And now listen to this. Parents, young parents, only 2%, 2% of parents of pre-teens in America today possess a biblical worldview based on those six beliefs. Do any of you find that to be a little bit of a wake-up call? In my interactions with other pastors, especially young pastors, I I frequently hear this statement, we want to engage the culture with the gospel. It sounds good, doesn't it? It's a great goal. Engage the culture with the gospel. But here's what I often want to say. You can't give what you don't have. 
You can't give what you don't have. You, you can't share what you don't possess. And what seems to be more true at present is that secular culture is impacting the church far more pervasively than the church is affecting secular culture with the gospel. In fact, I would say it's dangerous for anyone to, to try to attempt to engage the culture if they don't possess a firm, uncompromising biblical worldview and, and complete confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only hope for the world. So given given those statistics about pastoral leaders, especially church leaders, it's no wonder that, that our churches today are so weak and so impotent in our witness to the world. Dr. Howard Hendricks was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many, many years, um, well-beloved professor. And one of the lines he made famous was, if there is a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. If there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. In other words, if, if, if the guy standing or the, the gal standing in the pulpit is confused, greater confusion is going to be the result. You can't give what you don't have. And those who study the dynamics of faith development in children report that a, a child's worldview develops between 18 months and 13 years of age. At 13, a child's worldview is, is nearly fully formed. What follows after the, the rest of, uh, what follows over the rest of his or her life is just kind of polishing. It's continual refinement of that basic worldview that was formed in childhood. How important it is then for parents of preteens as the primary shapers of their children's minds and hearts to make it a priority to be biblically and doctrinally grounded themselves. How essential that those who teach children in the church be persuaded of the core tenets of the faith and have a vital personal relationship with Christ. You can't give what you don't have. And I'll be honest, I I don't know how Christian parents today think they're going to raise children who grow up to be biblical Christians and experience a vital relationship with Jesus Christ themselves without the help of the church, without the help of pastors and Sunday school teachers and youth workers. Yeah, I'm probably in a a demographic of people who who have more biblical training than the average bear. But but I will tell you that my wife and I fully understood our need for the church, partnership with the church in raising our kids to follow Jesus. We needed Sunday school teachers. We needed youth workers who would engage them with the gospel, who would who would serve as models for them of a life of faith, who would teach them God's word. We can't do it all ourselves. It's too big a task. It's our primary responsibility as parents, but it's still way bigger than we are. And I don't know how Christian parents can even trust the church 
when so few of us are willing to partner with them by serving faithfully in those essential roles. What we're witnessing all across America today is churches who have caved to the culture as a result have lost influence and gone into significant decline. The last time I was with a gathering of pastors from uh, our northwest district of Converge, which is the, the movement that we're affiliated with, our, our executive minister made this statement that record numbers of pastors today are stepping out, burning out, and failing out of the ministry all at alarming rates. And many because they've simply lost confidence in the faith. Half of all Americans have never read the Bible. Not even a chapter, maybe not even a verse. So many have never heard even the basic tenets of the gospel. We often think that, you know, the, the world around us has, has heard the gospel and has rejected it. And the, the reality is that, especially here in southwest Washington, that a majority of people have never even heard the gospel. They've never even heard a basic telling of the gospel. 25% of American Christians say it's no big deal whether they grow spiritually. It's kind of a low priority. Maybe I'll get to it someday. Only 50% of Christians in this country say that they are deeply committed to practicing their faith, and yet America is a Christian nation, isn't it? Isn't it? 65% of all Christians in the United States believe that there are multiple paths to heaven, which means that they're saying of Jesus who said, no one comes to the Father but by me, that he was either confused or he was lying. Here's an, another, and this I'll, I'll end with this. Only 8% of regular church attenders believe that sharing their faith is very important. 8%. 92% do not believe that sharing their faith is an important thing. 47% actually think it's morally wrong to share their faith with someone of a different faith. In other words, we've given into pluralism. We've given into relativism. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, Charlie Brown said. 22% of evangelical Christians have made a conscious decision to hide their faith from their friends for fear that they might offend them. Now, sensitivity is so important, isn't it? But would you think that I really loved you if I decided that it was okay, it was more important that I don't offend you than, than that you go to hell and never know Christ, never, never hear the gospel, never have a chance to respond? In verse 9 of the 36th Psalm, David says to God, With you is the fountain of life. With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
And I just want to close with this, that if we neglect the light of God's word, if we choose to willfully reject that light, or carelessly neglect that light, then what we will find is that we have also forfeited the fountain of life that God wants to pour out continually into us to cause to flow through us into the lives of others. So yes, may the Lord make us like the Bereans. And may we come to God's word daily, approach it expectantly, examine it carefully, receive it eagerly, respond to it obediently. Let's pray. Lord, your word says, the psalmist wrote, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my to my path. Lord, we, we just acknowledge that without your word, we're, we're wandering in the dark. And without passing on the word to others, to our children especially, that we are subjecting them to a lifetime of wandering in the darkness. I pray today for young parents who are raising children in their homes. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would call them to your word, that, that you would help them to understand how incredibly essential it is that their children get clear on the truths of Scripture, on the, the center on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they love your word. That they love your church. They love your kingdom. They look forward to the day when you will appear. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a hunger and a thirst for for your word. And Lord, deliver us from the terrible tyranny of always attempting to be culturally relevant because what the culture is looking for is something that is distinct and true. Help us to be your church, the church you have in mind for us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.